Hi, I'm Dave Scott. I'm pastor of Crossway Community Church, and I want to welcome you. Crossway is a church simply committed to making disciples. We meet at 1501 Woodbury Road. It's off of Colonial and Fort Wayne in East Orlando. Come check us out. I look forward to meeting you. All right, so since this is a message about prayer and uh, connecting with God regarding His heart, that's what we want to do in prayer, right? Connect with His heart. The best thing to do to start would be to pray, right? So let me, let me pray briefly. Lord, come here and teach us and change us through the power of prayer and through your word. Um, your word is living and active. It's able to speak to the very division of our soul and our spirit. It's able to move us, to change our hearts, and to compel us to speak and and to pray with your intentions and your thoughts. So, Lord, uh, please open your word. Teach us to pray as Nehemiah did. Amen. So, uh, today's message is from Nehemiah chapter 1. We're really only going to look at just seven verses from Nehemiah chapter 1. We do not have time to go into the whole um, book of Nehemiah, so you can go ahead and turn there. this, this uh, little section in Nehemiah chapter 1 is Nehemiah's prayer, and I'll actually call it Nehemiah's prayer guide. It's a prayer guide for us. Um, and prayer is simply a conversation with God, right? Um, so we really don't have time in today's message to get the full context and history of Nehemiah. Um, you're you're going to have, if you really want to get the big picture and context of Nehemiah and Ezra. Actually, Ezra and Nehemiah are there in the Bible together, but they were originally written as one continuous scroll. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries, and actually there were no chapter breaks in the original scroll. There was no book break, actually. It was Ezra and Nehemiah together. Um, Ezra went back into Jerusalem uh, several years, about a dozen years ahead of Nehemiah, um, and they were there to help restore the people of God and the, and the temple of God. Um, I wish we had time to talk about the whole story because it's an amazing story. Actually, Nehemiah, the, you read through the whole book, and there, even though there's some amazing things that are happening, there's no like flat-out miracles, what we would call miracles of God. It was simply the people of God listening to, to the promises of God Praying intently, you see Nehemiah as a man of prayer, and they simply obeyed, and God did some great things. Um, but I would love to get, uh, we don't have time, but I, I, I love church history, and so I would love to get more into the context and everything uh, behind it. Pastor Dave is a, uh, he's a true church historian, and so if you want to know the full story, you're going to have to ask him to preach a series on Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm not going to do that today, um, but I will say that Nehemiah is not just a chronicle of history. When you read the whole book, it is a, a catalog and a, and a record of, of history, but it's really partially a, not just a chronicle of church history, but it's, it's a partially a call to church revival. That's what uh, the church in America desperately needs today. Um, So Nehemiah's return 
to Jerusalem happened actually about 90 to 100 years after the first wave of Jewish exiles returned to start rebuilding the temple. And for them, the temple was more than just a landmark or symbol. It was essential. It was everything for their culture. It was, uh, the temple was everything for their connection with God. It was where they could commune with God and be made right with God. That's where um, God's presence lived in glorious, awesome fullness. So Nehemiah went back 90, 100 years after the first people started to go back to rebuild everything. The city of Jerusalem had been completely destroyed. I mean, no, no stone was left on top of another. And the people had gone back to rebuild, but they stalled. They stalled in their efforts because, you know the story, they disobeyed God repeatedly. They became discouraged. And basically what they did is they took on the practices of the other people who were living in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. They began to to take on the practices of worshiping other gods. So Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He was also a history scholar, and he knew the history of the people of Israel. He returned ahead uh, of Nehemiah to educate the Jews. Uh, He was a teacher. He he was there to educate them because the people in Jerusalem, all all the people that had gone back and moved in there, so for uh, decades they had been without an opportunity uh, to hear the law, to hear the word of God. They, they didn't even have a way to read the word of God. And uh, then they drifted. They became sucked into these other practices. Um, so Ezra went to teach them. In short, both Ezra and Nehemiah were sent on a critical restoration project. Each of them, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, Both had a vibrant prayer life, and they saw their mission as a means for God's glory to be restored, and they saw their mission as a a way to help the hearts of the people be restored to God. That was much more important than rebuilding physical structures. Um, So let's talk about the word restore just for a minute. What does it mean for God to restore somebody's heart. Have you ever taken an old piece of furniture or maybe an old classic car and restored it back to its glory days? This, uh, this is an example. This project actually was going on in our garage this weekend. My son Toby uh, actually restored this piece of furniture that we have. Uh, it's an old Crosley radio from uh, the 1930s or maybe early 40s. Um, so, if you've ever restored a piece of furniture, it's a lot of work, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, in some cases, uh, we get this antique, and it's worth some money, but then we put in all this time and energy and buying little parts to things to clean it and things to improve it, and we end up like investing way, way, you know, five times more time and energy and expense than the thing is worth. 
you know? Um, but this, this is the end product. Uh, now, the, you turn the knob, and it still doesn't play music. And uh, uh, the um, turntable on the record player in there, you hear the motor kind of grinding, but it doesn't spin. And so it's just a nice piece of furniture. Um, but the, uh, the effort there uh, to make it look nice and to restore it is, that's, that is really a picture of what God in Jesus has done uh, and, and the effort that was taken to restore our hearts to God. It was way, 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 way more investment than was worth um, in, our, in our own flesh. So um, before I get any further, I want to I introduce you to my family, um, especially for those of you who don't don't know me. This picture was actually taken almost exactly seven months ago here at the Christmas Eve service. Um, and on the far right there, that's, that's Shannon, my lovely wife, and then Toby um, next to her. He's uh, going into his second year at Liberty University. And then Avery. Um, Avery's grown and out of the house. She lives in Memphis, Tennessee, and works um, as a children's coordinator at uh, a church there. And then my mother, Joanne, many of you know her. She uh, has lived with us for about three years, and she's 84. Um, and then Addison is our other daughter. She's going to be a senior uh, this year at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And we had the opportunity to go on a vacation. Uh, we had our summer vacation early in the summer, uh, in the middle of May. And uh, this, this was a... Um, we, went, we went out to Nevada and California on a national parks tour, and we actually started in Death Valley, uh, the largest national park in America. It's, a, it's actually a, an amazing place. Uh, it's a desert, but um, this is actually in Death Valley. This, is, this is actually was a, a real low point for our family vacation, uh, pun intended. It's... Uh, <laughs> You can't read the sign, but this is 282 feet below sea level, the lowest point in the United States. So uh, we had a great vacation. Um, this was in the middle of May, but it, it was 103 that day. Uh, so I can't imagine what it is out there right now. Um, interesting marketing spin that they had in the 1890s. The, the mining companies out there started trying to get tourists to come spend time in Death Valley, you know, would you enjoy a trip to hell? Well, you know, you can come to uh, Death Valley and it says you can enjoy all the conveniences of hell. Um, and, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, what does it say? And Oh, enjoy all the advantages of hell without all the inconveniences. So I guess it eventually worked, but... Um, Death Valley has some, some uh, vistas as well as the low points. This, this is a spot where they filmed one of the Star Wars movies, incredible sand dunes. But then we also went on to a stark contrast in Yosemite National Park, amazing green forest, 200, tall, 200 feet tall trees. Um, it's hard to take a bad picture there. I mean, I am not a photographer. I snapped this. Uh, is just so beautiful. Here's the kids. They climb to the top of Yosemite Falls, the tallest waterfall um, in, the, in uh, the lower 48. 
so this, this picture was actually taken just a few moments, uh, almost at the same time they were standing at the top of it, that previous picture. So they, they actually hiked up quite a ways. But on our drive from um, Death Valley up into the mountains of Yosemite in California there, we passed through this little town in the desert called Trona, California. Now, is anybody here from Trona or you grew up in Ridgecrest, California, anywhere in that region? Okay. Uh, so we, we were driving through the desert there uh, to get up to the mountains. And you drive for miles and miles and miles in the desert. Lord knows what would happen to you if you ran out of gas. I mean, it's just nothing but salt flats, desert hot. It was like 105 and um, so we drive and drive and drive, and then we come up to this little town. We're like, what in the world? How does this town exist out here? Um, so Trona, uh, California, was built by a mining company um, that uh, in 1913, they started uh, processing minerals from the salt flats, and they, made, uh, they, they processed borax. And also at the time, in, in um, around you know 1915, they started processing potash, which is a major component of gunpowder, and it became very uh, useful and very um, uh, in demand during World War One. And so the town boomed. Uh, I don't know how many people lived there, but the mining company basically built up all these places for people to live. The people were not paid in cash. Who, who worked for the mining company, they were paid in company scrip. So they were actually bonded to the mining company. And when the, the there's a little shop that's there, Jamo Rama, it's still there. Um, not much else that's still there. So when the, when the uh, mining company went belly up, the town basically went belly up. And not only that, uh, several years ago they had an earth, one of California's earthquakes and several of the houses were partially damaged like this and they never rebuilt them. So today there's barely a thousand people that live there. There's basically no employment. There's still a, there's still a uh, public school. The high school graduated 13 people last year. Um, but uh, here's, here's our uh, drive-by of, of Trona. Uh, and the massive, massive mineral processing plant that's sitting there rusting. Uh, nobody there. It's just a ghost town. Um, everything, everything feels like it's being cooked, and the houses are crumbling, falling down. Uh, it's just an example of several small towns in America today that once had a thriving community, but uh, are in total need of restoration. It's, it's kind of a rough example, but a loose, you know, it is an example of Jerusalem, of how there once was this vibrant community, and it was torn down. So let me get into the text for today, Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, this, uh, these are the words of Nehemiah, but actually this, this is the report that came to Nehemiah about the condition of Jerusalem. One of his brothers had been there, came back, told Nehemiah this, and, he sa- and they said to me, the remnant that is there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is not just a historical account of Nehemiah's prayer. This is actually a form of prayer, and I'll call it a prayer guide for us today. It's not just for them, but it's for us today. So look at Nehemiah's focus as he came to grips with the sin of the people, which was the ultimate reason why all of the shame and all of the destruction had happened in Jerusalem. So it's not just seeing the sin and then brushing past it like uh, it never happened or like a busy traveler on the road. It's not just seeing sin and dismissing it. It is seeing as the eyes of our heart see. Our heart sees a a hurting, dying world when we see sin. And we see a dying world that cries out to be restored. That's what Nehemiah saw. So seeing and lamenting over sin is a form of communication with our hearts. Uh, Lament is a form of prayer. Uh, And that leads us to our first point in Nehemiah's prayer guide. We see sin... And then that leads us to weep and lament. We see sin and lament. And when we, when we lament over the brokenness that we see, we're connecting, we're actually connecting with God's heart. Uh, the Father's heart is aching over sin. He is heartbroken over any sin. Anytime we sin, he's heartbroken because that disconnects him from his cherished son or daughter. It breaks, it, it erodes the fellowship that the Father has with us. So if we're to know our Heavenly Father, we have to know what He feels. If, we know, if we're going to know God, we have to know what He feels. And God hurts over sin. It hurts his heart. He hurts because he loves us. He loves us so much that he gave up his only only delight, really, his ultimate delight, his son Jesus, to die in my place so that I could experience a relational restoration, a heart restoration. So, Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, and we know it's true that he did, because he died and suffered on the cross, it proves, that alone proves that God does not just see sin and dismiss it. For our Father, sin always hurts. He doesn't just think, oh, well, that's just the way those sinful people are. Too bad for them. Hmm. No, we see in Nehemiah, we see in this passage that for God, lamenting over sin um, is when we lament over sin, it's always, when we do that, we're always looking through the tear-soaked lens that brokenness must be restored. That's what God thinks. Uh, A ache must be comforted. A, A broken heart must be restored. A rebel must be reunited and brought back and drawn back in love. 
Do we see that when we sin? Do we feel that when we're sinned against? And I admit I have a a lot of growth to do in this area, but this is really a key point for our prayer life. In our prayers, um, we must clearly look at sin, and then that brings up questions that we can ask the Lord. So when you start to feel the ache of sin or some disconnect that... uh, is caused by sin. What is it that's broken? Looking beyond the symptoms, what's the core of this specific disease? You ask, ask God, what is the heart issue that truly needs to be restored? Mm-hmm. So in verse 4 of Nehemiah 1, it, uh, it indicates that Nehemiah had already been praying He had already been uh, connecting with God for God's people and for God's heart when he got the bad news, when he got the report. So it was like he received an oral, personal news blog about what's going on in Jerusalem. So he didn't get any videos. He didn't get any pictures. The only pictures he got were the word pictures from his brother. Um, But what does it say that Nehemiah did to let the news sink into his heart? He didn't just hear, you know, okay, tell me what's going on in Jerusalem. He didn't just sit there and hear it and say, hmm. It says, I sat down and wept and mourned. Wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying. It indicates he had already been fasting and praying. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, Nehemiah sat in the brokenness and ached for the people to be restored. He, he heard that uh, the walls had been broken down. They had no temple, no sanctuary, no place, no way to turn their hearts to God, no place to connect with God, no place to pray with God, and he wept for days. He said the hearts of the people need to be restored in communion with God. So verse 6 and 7, Hear the prayer of your servant, confessing the sins of your people Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So this is, uh, this is actually point number two of Nehemiah's prayer guide. Confess and agree and take responsibility. Now, Nehemiah agreed with God in his prayer about sin. Nehemiah agreed that he had sinned. And uh, there was no blame game. You don't read any blame game going on here. He, he doesn't say, oh yeah, those people back in Jerusalem, they're my people, but they sinned and I didn't. And this, is a, this is an important part of uh, our prayer life, Nehemiah owned personal responsibility for generational sin. He spent days fasting and praying, and he, uh, he essentially was asking God a sincere question. Uh, his question basically was, Father, how has my sin 
and my people's sins damaged our relationship with God, with you. So Ezra did the same thing. If you flip over to Ezra, uh, let's see. I'm a little out of sync with my slides here, but yeah, there we go. Ezra. Um, Ezra said, oh my God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. Uh, Ezra chapter 9. Um, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has, has mounted up to the heavens. He says, uh, Ezra said he, he took responsibility for the sins of the people too, even though he had, he had been away and disconnected. He comes back in as the teacher, and he says, this is, this is my sin too. So, can the church learn from this? Can we as individuals, but also as a united body under the head of Christ, can we focus in prayer, take time to sit and not rush, not rush past corporate confession? Do we do that as a church? Can we sit and ask God, how has this sin damaged our relationship with you. So, again, the people had started going back to Jerusalem a hundred years before Nehemiah gets there. They had become very corrupt. They had intermarried with other peoples in the region, started worshiping other gods. Um, They'd forgotten about God. But Nehemiah sat for days in this brokenness, and he owned it. So let's look at verse 8, back in Nehemiah 1. Uh, he basically, Nehemiah, in his prayer, he basically goes back and recounts um, what Moses had said and the promises of God through Moses. He said, remember uh, what you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah recounts uh, both the curses and the blessings promised by God. He actually asks God, he invites God in his prayer to remember the promises. said, God, you promised this for your people Um, through Moses, and what did God promise? Essentially, God promised his steadfast love. God, if you go back to where God originally said this in Deuteronomy through Moses, he's he's saying, you're going to be my people. Nothing's going to change that. I love you. My steadfast love will not be changed. I love you deeply. And he, he looked at, Nehemiah looked at that and said, actually, God's discipline of his people is not separate from his steadfast love. It's actually enveloped inside his steadfast love somehow. We, we struggle to understand that. 
but that's something that he prayed, and that's how he connected with God's heart. Is like, God, you're disciplining your people, but it's because you love us. Um, so that's actually point number three in the prayer, uh, prayer guide of Nehemiah. Take time in your prayers to recall and recount God's discipline and yet his loving pursuit of you. Um, you can ask, Lord, where am I on the map of your pursuit of me and, of, as, and us as a church? Um, let's see. Psalm 77:11. This is a great way to recount and recall all the things that God has done. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. And then when you take stock and you evaluate what God has done, you can, uh, so you can do this, um, you can do this just by taking out a sheet of paper and draw what I call a life map or a life timeline. And you can start it, um, you can put the first dot on the left of your map and just draw a line. And you can start it from, let's say, the time that you started walking with Christ. Or you could could just go back, let's just say, go back six months and start thinking about all the things that you've seen God do to show you his love. Or maybe there are some pain points that you've had, maybe some conversations you've had, maybe there's been some relational disconnects that you've, you've had recently. You can draw those like as ups and downs along, along the line, like peaks and valleys. And you, get, you take stock of all of that, and you, you, like the psalmist, you get to the end of that and you say, Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? Because you see how God's working in all of that, even in the pain in your life. Um, you can call it a timeline, so, okay, this is actually a life map that I drew for, for my life uh, six or seven years ago. And I used this thing called The Calling Journey. Uh, the Calling Journey is a book, um, and they have a website, too. So uh, it makes it real easy. You don't have to take out the sheet of paper and draw. You just put in, like, significant points um, from your life. Again, you can use it from six months ago or from decades ago and just walk through that. Many people in their lives go through um, what they call in the book the valley of identity. It's like when we get to a point, and and we sometimes go through multiple valleys of identity, but when we get to a point of our life where we're crying out to God and we're connecting with God and we're saying, God, you've been at work in my life and there's some things that don't make sense, and I need a way forward, but wait a minute, who am I? (laughs) Like, who am I in Christ? And we all have several, you know, a valley like that, but this is just a helpful tool. This actually is a, could be a really helpful tool um, to do together, and once you uh, draw out your map, you know, it took me half an hour to put these things in there. It didn't take long. Um, once you have your map, print out your map and take it and sit with your small group, 
your community group or your Bible study or even your family and say, you know, I've seen God work through my life and there's some things that I'm processing. This is how I've grown and this is where I am now. Um, and it's really fun to do this. I, I did this with a group of peers uh, many years ago and we spent, we got away to the mountains and we spent all day going through our uh, life timelines and it was very helpful for our growth. This is just a small disclaimer. I don't agree with 100% of the stuff that's in the book, but um, this is not to indicate that you get to the end of your life and everything is mountain peaks and perfect and you never have a valley again. Doesn't work that way. Uh, Point number four in Nehemiah's prayer guide here in chapter one, there's actually just two really quick points left. Um, We pray like Nehemiah uh, Lord, Lord, what do you want to do? And then we respond to that and we prepare ourselves and we commit to do it, right? Uh, you have to ask God in prayer, what do you want to do? Um, we see with the eyes of our heart that something needs to be restored. Uh, we see something that's broken and God wants to restore it. That's what Nehemiah saw, right? He sat for days and felt the brokenness. So when we see what needs to be restored, we wait, we hear God's voice. He prompts us with something specific that he wants us to join him with, partner with him in doing his restoration work. We may be totally unprepared for it. Often we are, but we say, okay, God, I'm going to do this. It's because it's he, this is what he wants to do, not, not me. Um, and so here's how Nehemiah prayed that. He said, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man was the king, a pagan king, He said, I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah saw the wall broken down and was prompted to take on the rebuilding as his project. It was God's project, but Nehemiah took it on. Um, Ezra's project, Ezra saw the people with no knowledge of the law. People didn't even have the ability to read the law, and he was prompted to go and basically spend from sunrise until sunset teaching the law to the people. Um, we, so we may be prompted uh, as, as we pray and we seek God, what's broken? What do you want to do? We may be prompted to help take the living word of God to people who have no way to hear it or understand it. Um, we may be prompted in a thousand different ways, honestly, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus told us to pray this. This is one of the most missional prayers in the Bible. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. So, We as the church are sent to his harvest. We prepare in here. This is what we do in church. We prepare in here 
for the harvest fields out there. Out there in Orlando, in our neighborhoods, and, and beyond. We, we have some fabulous connections with missionaries in different countries, in a big island not too far from here where um, people desperately need to hear about Jesus. Um, so we, we respond in prayer to what God wants to do. We commit to do it. And then you see this in Nehemiah's prayer guide. We hope in the ultimate restoration. That is, we hope in Jesus, the Messiah. So rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem wasn't the ultimate solution. It was a big project, but that wasn't the ultimate solution to restore the hearts of the people. Teaching the law to the people by Ezra was, uh, I mean, it was good, but it didn't actually bring them salvation. It just pointed them to the one who could save them. And we don't have time to jump to chapter 8 of Nehemiah, which was really uh, the story of Ezra when he um, called the Jews to assemble in Jerusalem after the amazing 52 days it took Nehemiah and his people to rebuild the walls. They said, we got it. We rebuilt the walls. Let's meet and have a meeting. So Ezra called the people together and from sunrise until sunset, he read the law to the people. And he actually had other scribes go around. He, he read it and he read it in the language that it was written in and the people couldn't understand it. They'd never heard it before. So he actually had other scribes go around and in little clumps of people, the other scribes, it says they explained the sense of the law. They translated it for them. They told them what they'd been missing out on. They told them what God had said and what they had disobeyed. And they told them how much that God loved them. And it said that there was weeping and the people uh, were distraught over the decades that they had wandered from God. And Nehemiah saw them weeping and they were, they were actually tearing their clothes and saying, what do we do? What do we do? Oh no, this is, this is terrible. And, God, and Nehemiah said in response to them, okay, don't, don't, don't grieve too long over your sin. That is, that is appropriate. But uh, take confidence because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what he was what he was pointing to, what he was actually saying prophetically was that the joy of Jesus is your salvation. So he said, celebrate and rejoice because we look to God who is restoring and we look to God who will send the Redeemer. That's what you ultimately need. And when the Redeemer comes, your sins will be blotted out forever. And while you wait for him, with your eyes on him, your hearts are going to be restored. That's how our hearts are restored in prayer, as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And so Nehemiah's encouragement for the people um, who saw their brokenness, is um, his encouragement for them is the same as his encouragement and God's encouragement for us today. Is, uh, he says, uh, it's really a question for Jesus. It's the final question. How can my heart be completely yours today, Jesus? Jesus is, he's our only hope for being restored. It's not the amount of prayer that we put in. It's not the works that we do. It's because of what he's already done.
So, one day there's going to be no more crying and no more pain because of sin, uh, no more tension, and we'll be fully in Jesus' presence. We put our hope in him. So this is um, just the prayer guide as a chart, uh, and I can make this available for the e-bulletin or email to you, but basically here's all the questions for Jesus. Um, the verses in Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, how can my heart be completely yours? And then there's a spot in the chart for you to journal. And what does God reveal to you when you ask those questions? And so um, you, can, uh, you can take that and uh, pray through it. But basically, how, so how does, God, how does Nehemiah's prayer restore our hearts? So basic, here's, here's the breakdown. It kind of goes along with the chart, but tears. Tears lead to repentance. Repentance leads to a clean, listening heart. And a listening heart leads to faith and action in harmony with God's redeeming and restoring work. So we ask God what he wants to do. And we release our plans, uh, our own plans, and we receive God's plans. And we put our hope in the Messiah, not our own strength. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, pray this from Nehemiah chapter 1. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servants, your servants who delight to fear your name. We are here gathered today because we delight to fear your name. And give us success today as we give our hearts fully to you. Grant us mercy and favor in the sight of all the people we will touch and serve this week. Amen. Thanks for joining us today and listening to this message from Crossway Community Church. Once again, we meet at 1045 on Sunday mornings at 1501 Woodbury Road, which is just off Colonial and 408 in East Orlando. Come check us out. I'll see you then.